Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in the book of Acts, and so if you have a bulletin, there's an insert there. You can also follow along in the Bible app if you just go to the events page and uh, search uh, Roseburg First Christian Church. The notes will come up, and you can follow along that way. Uh, we're in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 1. We are discussing this book of Acts, uh, the sequel to the book of Luke. Luke wrote both the book of Acts, and he wrote the book of Luke. And Luke's writing chronicle for us the launching of the church exploding on the scene. Uh, up until this point, the disciples have been on kind of a roller coaster of emotions for a few years. They've been called to follow Jesus, and Jesus, uh, early in the Gospels, you can read the stories with Peter and with Andrew and with Matthew, where Jesus simply comes to them, and he says, follow me. Follow me. And so they follow him, and they go on this amazing journey of three years or so, where they follow Jesus and everything he does to usher in the kingdom of God. And then this roller coaster of events takes a dive as they go through the, uh, the pain and agony of seeing their rabbi, their master, their Lord, and their Savior betrayed, arrested, and crucified. But the story doesn't end, right? And they're on this roller coaster again. And of course, the women go to see the tomb, and the tomb is empty, and the women spread the news to all the disciples. And now they're in this position where, well, Jesus is alive. Now it's time for the kingdom of God to arrive. They're here. And then again, he gives them parting news, and he says, I'm actually going to go again. And you are called to just stay, wait in Jerusalem. So as we kind of get started here and we pick up in Acts chapter 1, here's the purpose of the book of Acts. Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church, despite internal and external oppositions. And so what we see here is during the Gospels, uh, particularly when Jesus preached and he talked, he would explain to them about the kingdom of God. And he would say things like, the kingdom of God is like, and he would explain what it's like, and he would use parables. You guys remember the parables that Jesus spoke in the uh, Gospels, and these parables were designed to explain these huge heavenly divine truths in words that we would understand. So he was always talking about the kingdom of God. Our life on earth versus the kingdom of God. And so the disciples were enamored with this idea that one day God's kingdom would rule and reign. And they were ready for it, right? They were living in uh, situations where uh, the Jewish people were subject to Rome and the Roman authority in so many parts of their life. When they heard about the kingdom of God, they said, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. 400 years we've been waiting for a prophet to come and tell us. Uh, Ever since our ancestors told us, we've been waiting for a Messiah. We knew this would happen. Kingdom of God, where can I serve in the kingdom? Where can I rule and have reign with you, Jesus? How can I serve? How can I be a part of the kingdom? And so the book of Acts actually tells us how God directs the expansion of the kingdom throughout the world. But first he would have to explain to them what's going on. So we pick it up in verse 6. The disciples, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They asked the 
question, is it time yet? Um, And he responds and he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So for the next few moments, what we're going to do is this. We're going to unpack the next verses, verses 9 through 26. We're going to unpack those verse by verse, and then I'm going to share with you three things we should be doing while we're waiting. Jesus told them, you need to wait in Jerusalem. And so verse 9 doesn't say they waited. In fact, it carries on quite a bit of a narrative of what happens next. So for you and I, what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting? We're going to unpack these verses, and then we'll answer that quickly at the end. Verse 9, it says this, we continue the story. When he had said these things, and they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I've always wondered what this verse looked like in real life. Like, what are we talking about? How fast was he lifted up? There's a couple of different images that come to mind. I think about a helicopter, right? And a helicopter gets going, and the blades start going and the wind kind of dissipates from the helicopter and it's kind of a shaky start at first and then it goes off. Was it something like that? Um, How many of you have seen Iron Man, right? I mean, was it like he put his arms down like that and at first he rumbled a few feet and then he just was gone? Uh, You ever seen a kid let go of a balloon and you just stand there and you watch and you watch? I mean, was Jesus going away slowly like that? I wonder what it was like. Um, It's interesting because no matter how fast he was going up into the sky, no doubt they watched him be lifted. We come to verse 10 and it says this, while they were gazing into heaven, right? While they were looking up as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels based on the description. It's interesting because in Luke's gospel, or Luke's book of the Acts, he never says these are two angels. But what he does instead is he describes what they're wearing. He kind of describes uh, the characters that they are so that we would know who they are. It's as if I said there's, um, there's someone outside. When you go outside, there'll be a lady outside. She will be wearing all black. Uh, she'll wear a pointy hat and she'll have a broom with her. And you guys will say, oh, that is a, a witch, right? Because based on the costume, based on what they're wearing, you have identified what she is. This is what Luke is doing. Luke's a, a brilliant author. Instead of saying outright that it's angels, he's describing them. So he says, these two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And this is what they said, verse 11. Men of Galilee, what are you looking at? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I like how the angels get right to the point. Um, you think about angels, the characteristics of angels and what we know them, of them. What, uh, what we can assume about angels is they're not omnipresent. If they're here, they can't be somewhere else. So um, by virtue of that understanding, if they're here talking to these disciples, looking after Jesus, you can assume they're not where? They're in heaven anymore, right? So I just want you to picture the angels. The angels said goodbye to Jesus 33 years ago, 34 years ago, whatever it was. 
Jesus has not been in heaven this whole time because he's been here physically on the earth. He has since lived this sinless, perfect life. They saw him be betrayed. The angels did looking down. They, um, presumably they saw that. They know about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And now Jesus is getting ready to go back up into heaven. Where do you think the angels want to be at this point? I would think so. Maybe this is why they're rushing to that point. He goes right to the point and they say, uh, why do you stand looking into heaven? The same way he went is the same way he will go into heaven. Uh, it's the same way he's going to come back. They remind them of Jesus who returns. He said he will come back as you saw him go. Don't just stand there looking into heaven. In other words, get busy doing what he told you to do, which was to wait. Right? I mean, that was the last instructions Jesus gave them was, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Is it time for us to restore the kingdom of Israel? No, in fact, you can't, I can't let you in on everything yet, but for now, just know that you should go to Jerusalem and wait. Just wait. So the angels are like, why are you standing here looking up to heaven? You have things to do. And they probably looked at each other and said, man, we got nowhere to go. All we're supposed to do is wait. So we come to verse uh, 12. Right? Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day's journey away. Sabbath's day journey away. This is the legal distance a Jewish person could travel on the Sabbath. It's the equivalent to a little over a half a mile. Uh, the distance uh, was from the temple to the furthest of the tribes that enable them to make a journey on a Sabbath. So they took that measurement, and that's how they talked to one another. So that's why this is important here in verse 12. You get to verse 13, and this is what it says. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Different Judas. So this upper room is possibly where they had the last supper with Jesus. It could be. All the disciples are mentioned, minus uh, Judas, of course. This is the only time the disciples are mentioned after Acts 1. It's interesting. Uh, the book is called the Acts of the Apostles, and yet the only ones that are mentioned after Acts 1 are Peter and John. And then, of course, uh, Paul enters the picture halfway through the book of Acts. Uh, it says this in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In uh, first century Jerusalem, and when you were a rabbi, you would not have women followers. You only had men that would follow you, men that would be your apprentice. And so Jesus was a trailblazer in many ways because he was the only rabbi who blessed women to follow him openly. And so Luke actually makes mention of that. And he says, uh, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is also Mary, uh, the last mention of Jesus' mother's, uh, Jesus's mother Mary in Scripture here. Um, it's interesting, too, that it also says, uh, who's the last group of people in verse 14 mentioned? His brothers. It's interesting because uh, during Jesus' life, his brothers did not accept him as the Messiah, didn't accept him as the Son of God. You can look back at John chapter 7, Mark chapter 3. They were not followers of Jesus during his life. For whatever reason, 
but after the death, the burial, and the resurrection, his brothers did follow him. So it keeps on going. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said this, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. It's an interesting phrase. We're going to stop right there. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Make no mistake, the disciples, the early followers of Jesus, believed in the inspired word of God, which to them was this collection of writings from Moses, the Torah. It was the collections of the law. It was a collection of the prophets who had wrote down uh, what they had been and what they had gone through, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these uh, historical documents. They believed those scriptures were from God. They believed in those They believed that it was God's written word preserved over generation, over generation to them. They believed God was the author. And so based on that scripture, Peter says this, The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now we know who he's talking about. This is Judas, one of the twelve. He was trusted, he was loved, he was a brother to them, and he was the one that betrayed the twelve and Jesus. He led the authorities to Jesus. Verse 17, talking about Judas, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. That word share is a word that um, uh, indicates an inheritance. Um, And we know that Judas abdicated his responsibility, responsibility and his inheritance for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed uh, the 12 and Jesus. Verse 18, it says this, Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Remember, Luke's a doctor. He likes details. So he's going to let you know what happened. If he was on social media today, maybe he would be doing the zit thing and showing you. He liked details. He liked all the guts and the gore. So he's saying this narrative about Judas, uh, that he followed headlong, he burst open, middle, all his bowels gushed out. Verse 19, became known to all his inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Now, wait a minute. How did Judas die? Remember the narrative that he hung himself? So this is an area where people will say that there's a contradiction in Scripture. Well, they'll say, well, if the gospel said he hung himself, and Luke said he fell, and he fell to his death and his bowels gushed out, which one is true? It's interesting because when you look at historical documents, there are a couple of different ways why this, uh, both of these things are true. Um, the first tradition is this, he did hang himself. He failed in his suicide attempt. He, failed, he fell some 50 to 100 feet, depending where exactly on this cliff that he hung himself, and that he died in the fall. The other, um, the other tradition that is probably more accurate is he died in the hanging. He hung all day Saturday. When Sunday came and the earth, what happened to the earth? Shook. Remember that? The earthquake? What would happen to this hanging body? Perhaps it would fall from the tree. The tree itself could have been dislodged, and then his body fell to those 50 to 100 feet. Either way, there's, there's ways where both of those narratives are true. But he's talking about Judas. There's an important reason why he's talking about Judas. He alludes to it in verse 20. He says this, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp be desolate, 
Let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. So Peter begins to quote from the Psalms, and these Psalms are written by David, and David is actually talking about his own throne. When David's writing this, he has no uh, knowledge, most likely, about what's happening in the future with the disciples and, and with Judas, and there's no indication that David knew in his Psalms, in the songs that he was writing, that he was writing the future. No, David was simply writing what was happening to him historically. And the perspective for most followers of Jesus in Peter's time was that history repeated itself. The history was actually circular. And so if you think through through the Jewish way of thinking things, they had this patriarch in Abraham that led to Moses. And uh, through these series of events, God would free their children. And then, in many ways, history repeated themselves for the Jewish people where Moses led to the throne of David. And David would bring this new kingdom to the Jewish people. And then again, they would think history repeated itself, starting with David leading to the Messiah. And so oftentimes, when they looked at Scripture, uh, these men and women in the first century Jerusalem were looking for how does Scripture repeat itself? What lessons can we learn historically based on what's happened in the past where we can see how history repeats itself? So Peter no doubt looked at this scripture, and they had to make sense of their current state. So based on that, they took these words, may his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, let another take his office. So, and this is what they did based on their understanding. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taking up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. What were they doing here? The logistics were this. They had an opening in their 12, so they were looking to replace Judas uh, with someone else. And so they had these requirements built in. They said it has to be someone that was there from the beginning, that saw the Lord Jesus Christ in the beginning. They were with us from the beginning, from the beginning of the baptism of John until the day Jesus was taken up from us. They needed to have the same experience and the same witness to who Jesus was that we did. So they looked around and they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So they looked at the requirements that they had set out and they said, okay, who can replace Judas? Who among us is qualified to replace Judas? And they found two individuals that could meet the criteria. So how would they choose between these two qualified choices? Why, uh, how would they choose? Well, they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. In other words, we got two candidates. We don't know which one to choose. You ever been in that position? Two candidates. You don't know which one to choose. And so they said, who shall we choose, Lord? Lord, you know their hearts. Which one of us should we choose? This is how they decided. Uh, well, the prayer continues. To take place in this ministry, apostle sir, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. How do we replace Judas? Verse 26, they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Every time I read this story, I think, they did what? 
They cast lots. So that's an old phrase that simply means they, they cast lots. They drew straws, perhaps. Uh, they rolled dice. They, they took one of these methods, and this is how they made decisions. So you say to yourself, or I say to myself, how in the world is this a way to make such a heavy decision? So there's a couple of different things we have to understand about Jewish culture. Number one, they did everything they knew to do to make the right decision. They looked at the criteria. They looked at the requirements that they were going to have to make this really important decision. And based on that, they had two choices. Uh, it was common in Jewish culture uh, to make decisions this way. Um, they would roll dice. They would cast stones. They would draw stars. Uh, they would do all they could to make the right decision. But when there was two good decisions ahead of them, and both decisions seemed to be good to them, they cast lots. They simply just let the uh, lots decide for them. Proverbs said it this way, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In other words, they believe that if they did all the work necessary to make the right decision and then cast the lots, it was God's way of directing them one way or another. It's very interesting. Um, this is also before the Holy Spirit was on them. So you and I, when we make decisions, or I sit with someone and we walk through what it looks like to make a good decision, one of the steps in making a good decision is this, simply listening to the Holy Spirit. Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit would lead us, the Holy Spirit would guide us. They had no concept of what that looked like. This was also pre-church leadership. There was no uh, leadership structure for them to go. There was no elders for them to go to. There was no uh, elder shepherd or pastor for them to go to and say, hey, I have these two really good decisions, but I have to only make one of them. Would you help me make that decision? There was nothing in place for them to do that. So they did the next best thing. They did everything they knew how to do. They cast lots, and this is how they uh, made decisions. It's interesting because before Acts 1, there are other times you can see in Scripture where lots are cast. Um, maybe the most famous one is, uh, do you remember Judah? Judah, that's not his name. Jonah, Jonah's his name. Jonah's in the uh, big, uh, the belly of the whale. Before that, though, the sailors that were with them, they had to try to find out who was responsible for their storm. Do you remember how they found out? They cast lots. God directed the lots. Boom, is this, our Jonah volunteered, actually. He said, it's me. Um, after Acts 1, I find no record of casting lots. I think it's, in, it's, it's indicative of because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, we don't leave those decisions to dice anymore. We leave those to our personal relationship to who Jesus is. But in this case, this is what they did. They cast lots, and this is how they came to this uh, uh, decision. That's what happened in verses 9 through 26. I want to share with you, what are we supposed to do when we're waiting? This idea was this. Jesus had gone up into heaven. The men, they're standing there looking after Jesus, and they are literally doing what Jesus asked them to do. Jesus said to wait, and they just stood there waiting, right? They were doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do in one essence, and yet the angel said, why are you gazing, standing here? He's going to come back. But there's things that you can be doing. So uh, what should we do when we're supposed to be waiting? Three things, really quick. Number one is this. Obey God where God is absolutely clear. 
There will come moments in your life where you pray and you're waiting for God to reveal himself to you. You're waiting for God to answer some um, decision you're about to make. There's a fork in the road and you could go left, you could go right. You need some other information. You need the Holy Spirit's leading. And you say to God, God, what am I supposed to do? And God says, wait. In the meantime, number one, obey God where God is absolutely clear. If there is something in your life that you are needing to obey God in while you're waiting, God wants you to obey God where he's absolutely clear. Look at what they did. They immediately returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. The last command they had from Jesus was this, stay in Jerusalem and wait. So they did the one thing they knew they needed to obey Jesus in, they obeyed God where they could. Mark Twain said it this way, that famous biblical theologian, Mark Twain, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me, it's the parts that I do understand. Isn't that clever? Uh, There's a lot of things about the Bible I simply do not understand. Um... We are reading, uh, Libby and I are trying to read through uh, the scripture chronologically this year. We're trying to do that together. Um, And I can just tell you the Old Testament just messes with me. It does. Like Genesis is really hard to understand. There's so many cultural components and so many things that, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't present in their lives yet. They hear audibly from God and yet they... They, they listen to God, and, and then the way that they uh, interact with one another, it's very difficult to understand. Uh, Revelation just gives me headaches. It does. Um, and so I determined a long time ago that I am not going to let the parts of the Bible I don't understand interrupt my obedience to the parts of the Bible I do understand. So where God and the Bible are absolutely clear, we must choose to obey. So you know what's completely clear to me? Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but so much the more. In other words, do not forsake the gathering of God's people. So I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I don't know if it's pre, mid, or post-tribulation. I don't know... um, I don't know what all those creatures in Revelation mean, but you know what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to worship with God, God and his people. I'm supposed to show up physically with God and his people. So those of you watching online, this is not a rebuke for watching online. We welcome the fact that you're watching online. But I want to challenge you this way, to obey God where God is absolutely clear. Worship with God and his people. It's a priority in Scripture. Uh, You know what else is really clear in the Bible? He says to love one another as he has loved us. So I don't know necessarily about the ins and outs of the Jewish law and the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament and how that applies to the New Testament and why Peter was so confused when he was allowed to eat everything. But in the Old Testament, just right before Jesus, like they, they weren't allowed. I don't understand that, but I do know this. I'm supposed to love people as Jesus loved people. That's not hard for me to understand. It's not complicated. Um, We're supposed to forgive one another. 
uh, we're supposed to give and it shall be given unto us. So when you are waiting for direction from God, it's vitally important to obey him where is absolutely clear. So church, what's the area that God and the Bible are absolutely clear that you need to simply obey? Because when we simply obey where he is absolutely clear, it puts us in a position to be in God's favor. The man looked around and said, well, I guess we're supposed to go back to Jerusalem. It's the last thing he told us to do, so I guess we should do that. Yeah, obey God where he's absolutely clear. Second of all, what should we do when we're absolutely clear? Number one, obey God where God is clear. I'm sorry. Yeah. Number two, practice unity with one another. It's interesting because in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says these, all these, all these men, all these people, all these followers of Jesus Christ were with one accord. In other words, they practiced unity. Now, I want you to think about what that means. Peter was still the guy who uh, denied Christ three times. Matthew was still the guy who was the tax collector who took advantage of most of the people in the room. Simon was still the zealot, uh, but the resurrected Jesus in their hearts and minds was greater than any difference. You see, unity exists when we look past our differences in pursue, in favor of pursuing Jesus Christ and his purpose. This doesn't mean that we ignore our sin. It simply means that once we've repented of our sins and we are following after Jesus, the ways in which we are different are not as important as it's whom we follow. And if we're following Jesus, that unity needs to be displayed in our lives, in our relationships. And this is something that becomes a theme for the book of Acts and for all of Scripture. Proverbs 6 says it this way, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. The last thing that he says that's an abomination to him, someone who sows discord among the brothers. Titus says it this way, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Galatians 3 says it this way, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians says it this way, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we're all in one in Christ Jesus. So as Christians, our dismissive attitude toward unity is incredibly dangerous. I believe God is disgusted with it and the world is confused by it. When they see Christians who cannot uh, practice unity, who, have, uh, who are known for what they're against instead of what they're for, who, who constantly bite and bicker with one another, I think God is disgusted with it. But also the world is so confused with it because we're supposed to love one another. And when we bicker and fight with one another for these petty, non-essential items, I believe it tells the world, you don't want any of this. Right? And yet Jesus said in the New Testament, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Scripture teaches us that our influence on the world is directly tied to the unity we display. So here's uh, Matthew, and here's Peter, and here's Simon, and all the other uh, disciples. 
and they put aside their differences. They looked across the table and said, Matthew, you used to take advantage of me. Peter, you denied Christ. All of these different ways that could have had uh, severe differences among them, they set them all aside, and they were in one accord as, though, as they obeyed God where God was perfectly clear. They practiced unity. So how do we display unity in Roseburg in 2022? Well, we worship together. We pray together. We show up when people need us to show up. We love people so well that it marks us as Christians. So what do we do when we're supposed to be waiting? We obey God where God is absolutely clear. We practice unity with one another. And then number three, we pray through each decision as you wait. It's beautiful because when they gathered together after the angels left, they prayed. It says this in verse 14, these, all these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. When they had a major decision in replacing Judas, it says this, they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these you want us to choose. They prioritized prayer in their decision making. Uh, it's, 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 um, it's worth thinking about that when we have a decision to make, it's really easy to worry about the outcome of those two decisions, isn't it? It's natural for us to look at decisions in our life and say, boy, if we go left or go, we go right, this is what might happen. And if we're not careful, we will worry about those things. And what I'm asking you to consider is to channel that worry into prayer. Corey Ten Boom said it this way, any concern too small to be turned into prayer is too small to be made into a burden. In other words, church, if it's worth worrying about, it is worth praying about. Um, they obeyed God where God was perfectly clear. They practiced unity. They set aside the small differences in favor of pursuing who Jesus was, and then they prayed through each decision. If we were to follow the example of Acts 1, it would critically minimize the number of unwise decisions we would make. If we simply obeyed God where God is clear, if we simple practice unity and worshiped and did life with other like-minded believers, if we embraced the scriptures like they did, if we prayed with and for one another, it would critically minimize the number of unwise decisions we do in a, we make. So how will you prioritize your prayers? How will, you, uh, well, how will you take these decisions in front of you and turn them into op opportunities to simply follow him? Uh, all of us are waiting for God. We're waiting for him to show up in our families. We're waiting for him to answer prayers on our behalf. We're waiting for him to reveal to us what's the next chapter in our life. Maybe you're newly retired or you're on the verge of retirement. And you think, my goodness, what's next for us, God? Will you show us what's next for us? Maybe you're in a job situation and you're waiting for the perfect job uh, to reveal itself to you. Uh, you're filling out applications, you're doing all the work, you're going through resumes, and for some reason there's a closed door and a closed door, and so you're waiting for God to provide this job that kind of opens up your world for your family. You're waiting for God in your family. There's a uh, relationship to be restored. There's sons and daughters that need to work through uh, the growing pains of adolescence, and you're just waiting for them on the other side, and you're waiting, and it's a long wait. Well, what are we supposed to do while we're waiting? 
Well, first, obey God where, we're abs- where he's absolutely clear. Church, what is the one area that God and the Bible are absolutely clear that you need to simply obey? Maybe it's to forgive someone. Maybe it's to love someone. Maybe it's to give in 2022. Maybe it's to, um, maybe it's to submit yourself to a church body, join a church body. What is the one area God simply is asking you where he's absolutely clear that you need to simply obey? Number two, what commitment do you need to make when it comes to worshiping and practicing unity? How can you practice unity? What would it look like for you to simply love and to worship and to show up in the lives of those around you? And then thirdly this morning, how will you prioritize prayer? How will you prioritize prayer in your home, in your marriage, uh, at work? How will you prioritize prayer? Let's take a moment. Let's just think about these. Would you mind bowing your heads as I pray for you this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are all waiting for something. There's so many different ways we could be waiting. Thank you for the example of the disciples. Thank you that when they were um, with Jesus, they followed him honestly and sincerely. And yet we see them here in Acts 1, and they are in a moment of transition. They are wrestling with the departure of Jesus physically and not knowing quite what to do next. They're in the in-between. I think for some of us, we're probably there too, Lord. We're in the in-between. We're in between jobs. We're in between relationships. We're in between where things were good and we are kind of in a spot where things are just up in the air. And we're waiting. We're waiting for you. We're waiting for your presence. We're waiting for your comfort. We're waiting for you to answer prayers. And Lord, it, uh, it can feel like a very long wait. So Father, I pray that as we consider what we're supposed to do while we're waiting. I pray that you would make absolutely clear for us how we're to obey. Whatever it is that you and Scripture have affirmed to us that are absolutely clear, I pray that we would simply obey that we would simplify our walk with you in such a way where we simply, as the old hymn says, trust and obey because there's no other way. I pray that we would simplify our faith that way. There are things that we're not going to understand. There are timetables that we simply don't agree with you with. And while we wait, help us to obey. We know we should be praying, so help us pray. We know we should be in Scripture, so help us develop that commitment. We know we should love and be loving to those around us, so give us that attitude. We know we should be kind and patient and gentle. We know we should give. We know we should worship with others. So in those areas where you are absolutely clear, I pray for the simple ability to 
obey. Father, I pray for those of us who simply need to make a commitment to practice unity, to set aside petty differences in our pursuit of you. We might not agree on everything, but you have called us. And we're part of this one great big family. And like any other family, family reunions show us the, the, the diversity and the uniqueness that all of us brings towards a family. Father, I don't want us to ignore sin or ignore places in our life where we need to repent of. But Father, in the areas where our differences are simply a matter of opinion or perspective, I pray that we would be willing to set those aside in order to sit at the table and practice unity. And then, Father, I pray that we would prioritize prayer. I love that the disciples' absence of your presence, absence of the Holy Spirit, yet they just simply prayed. They prayed through their decisions. They prayed as they gathered there in the upper room. They prayed as they had this really important decision ahead of them. Lord, would you cultivate us a priority for prayer that when we're uh, stressed or anxious or there's cares in our heart, that we would simply pause our days and prioritize prayer in that moment. That when we're around loved ones, that we would simply pray for them, but also with them. That in every major decision in our life, we would acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior, and we would prioritize prayer this way. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.